One Sunday, a Sunday school teacher was with her students, and she asked them, who is the most important woman in all the Bible? And one young lady quickly answered, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, she has to be the most important woman in all the Bible because she's the mother of the Son of God. A, another child then answered, Sarah, Abraham's wife, and pointed out that, that she's the the, uh, the, the woman who would bear Isaac, and she would be the, the wife of the man through whom the covenant initiated, and she would be, uh, I, I believe the Bible referred to her as the, the mother of many nations, and so on. But one brilliant young man raised his hand, and when called upon, he said, the most important woman in the Bible is Eve. And the teacher asked him to explain his answer. He said, well, it's because we have two days named after her, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. Now that illustration, that humorous story, has no point whatsoever to our lesson. It's just the only occasion I can ever use it. But today is the first day of this new year. It is 2023, and, and we are now entering a, a new year. And one of the most common practices associated with the start of a new year is the making of New Year's resolutions. A New Year's resolution is a personal declaration of what one intends to do during the new year in order to change an undesired traits or an undesired behavior or, or it may be a resolution to to accomplish some particular goal that they want to achieve in their life or it could be any number of otherwise means to improve one's life in some tangible way i'm certain many of you have engaged in the practice of of setting some New Year's resolutions, maybe this year, maybe in previous years. I'm sure many of you have also failed at keeping some of those resolutions. Statistics say that 80% of the New Year's resolutions that are made will be abandoned by the end of February, and that only 10% of those who make New Year's resolutions will actually fulfill their New Year's resolutions. Now, the Bible doesn't speak about resolutions per se. But the Bible does talk about goal setting, about strategic planning. You have this passage in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 5 that says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. And there is one caveat to strategic planning and to goal setting, and that is that you do it in accordance with the will of God, that, it, that your goals and your plans always surrender to the will of God. James chapter 4 and verse 5, 15 warns us that we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so it, the Bible is not anti-resolutions. The Bible is not anti-goal setting. The, the Bible is not anti-planning. The Bible actually wants us to plan things out, to count the cost, but to always do so with the knowledge of God's will. The Bible also speaks about us maturing, about growth. The Bible anticipates that we are going to grow. So we have passages in Hebrews that talks about us moving from milk to meat. We have passages in 2 Peter chapter 1 that talks about adding things to our faith. We have these passages in the Bible that anticipate that we're going to mature, that we're going to improve, that we're going to become better. And so with those things in mind, it seems feasible, it seems understandable, it seems logical 
to employ some goal setting for ourselves when it comes to spiritual matters. Last week in our bull, on our bulletin cover, I did what I do every year, and I put a resolutions worksheet. This is resolutions not regarding your physical health necessarily. These are not resolutions regarding uh, your habits or things like that. These are resolutions about your spiritual life. If you didn't get a copy of that bulletin, I encourage you to go online to our website. They are available under the members section of the website, and you can download that bulletin. And I encourage you to make some spiritual resolutions for this upcoming year. Challenge yourself using some of the statements provided on that sheet to come up with some goals for yourself spiritually in 2023. There's no better resolution you can make than one that has to do with your relationship with the Lord. And so I encourage you to do that. But since resolutions are so quickly abandoned and so often fail, I thought maybe what we could do tonight is discuss some practical steps we can take to increase our odds of successfully meeting our goals, especially the spiritual ones. And, and the, the steps that I want to talk about will be based on a series of events in the Old Testament that contributed to a spiritual revival in Israel during the reign of King Asa, who was the third king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And from his experience, we can discover some ingredients that contribute to a recipe of revival. And they're the exact same ingredients we need in order to initiate spiritual change in our own lives. So we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament. We're going to spend some time in some books that we may not spend much time in. In particular, in the, the, the two volumes of Kings and the two volumes of Chronicles. Let's begin, if you will, by turning over to the book of 1 Kings. Because the first thing we need to understand in order for revival to occur, in order for change to happen, in order for us to be successful at any type of resolution we set for ourselves, the first thing we're going to have to do is reject status quo. Status quo is a Latin phrase that means the existing state of affairs or the, the way things are currently. To reject something is to dismiss it, to remove it from consideration. And when I hear the term reject, my mind automatically thinks about basketball. Because as many of you know, a shot that is blocked by a defender in basketball is called a rejection. I know this quite well. Because I've played basketball for many years. And due to my size, I had many a shot rejected. So when we say that step one of initiating change is rejecting the status quo, what we're saying is that we have to dismiss or send away our current situation. We have to declare that what is currently normal or, cur or currently comfortable is no longer acceptable. Change can only begin when the need for change is recognized and accepted. So I want to turn to the story of Asa, but before we can actually dive into Asa's life, we have to consider his ancestry. See, though Asa was a descendant of David, and David is identified as a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14, Asa did not actually descend from a, a, 
a lineage of faithful men. He descended from David, the man after God's own heart, but the generations between him and David were not so faithful. See, we need to consider who the relatives of Asa were between him and his great-great-grandfather, David. First, there's Solomon's, I mean, there's Asa's great-grandfather, who is Solomon. Though Solomon did some great things, such as constructing the temple of God and writing important pieces of wisdom literature, he was notorious for his numerous wives who led him into idolatry. If you'll turn over to 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4, there's a statement about Solomon that is so discouraging. When you know his wisdom, when you know his father, when you know what God has done for him, and then you read in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4, where it summarizes Solomon's spiritual demise by saying, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And so when you look at Asa's great-great-grandfather, or excuse me, great-grandfather Solomon, he's not like David. He stopped following the Lord. He wasn't faithful like his father David was. That's the first generation between David and Asa. The second generation between David and Asa was, da- was, was um, Asa's grandfather. And Asa's grandfather, who is the son of Solomon, the grandson of David, was a guy named Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a stubborn, power-hungry individual who preferred the counsel of his buddies over the counsel of wise men. It inevitably led to the division of the kingdom. Rehoboam is the reason that the United Kingdom kingdom became a divided kingdom. But his greatest mistake is identified in 2 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 1. If you want to turn there, 2 Chronicles 12, chapter 12 and verse 1, this is what we read as a, about Rehoboam, a summary of Rehoboam. It says that Rehoboam abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In other words, Rehoboam didn't obey God. He went the opposite direction of his his grandfather David. He did not have a, a, a heart like the Lord's. But more than that, Rehoboam brought the nation of Israel along with him in that journey away from God. So Asa's grandfather makes things even worse than his great grandfather. And then, of course, there's Asa's father, the grandson of Solomon, the great-grandson of David. His name was Abijah. Abijah had his highs and lows as a king, but in 2 Chronicles chapter 13, you'll see that he succeeded in battle against the northern kingdom of Israel because he relied on the Lord for victory. That was a high point in his career. But if you skip ahead to 1 Kings chapter 15, and particularly verse 3, here is the statement that summarizes Abijah's career. He walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. He walked in all the sins that his father did before him. His father Rehoboam. So here's the family heritage of Asa. When Asa arises to the throne, 
He's been preceded by his father Abijah, who walked in all the sins of his father, who was preceded by his grandfather Rehoboam, who's the reason the kingdom was divided and who led Israel away from God, who was then preceded by Solomon, whose heart was led away from God by all his many wives in his old age. So three generations between David, the man after God's own heart, and Asa, his great-great-grandson. See, the point is this. Asa was not brought up in an environment of devotion to God. By the time he comes to the scene, his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather had turned to idolatry for three generations. So when he became king, he had to make a choice. He could either maintain the status quo, which entailed inconsistent devotion to God at best and idolatrous worship at worst, or he could revive the nation's religious heritage and renew their commitment to the one true God as it existed during the days of David. And here's the thing. If you turn over to 1 Kings chapter 15, the description of Asa's career reveals that he did not choose the status quo. Scripture states in verse 11 of 1 Kings 15 that Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done. And in verse 14 of 1 Kings 15, we're told that the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. He didn't follow in the steps of those three generations before him. He chose to reject their path and choose a different one. Asa's experience teaches us that initiating spiritual change requires us to reject the status quo of our own lives. You know, Jesus issued a very bold statement a bold standard of discipleship when he said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. At some point in your life, you probably had to deny yourself something. Maybe you had to deny yourself certain foods because you were on a diet. Maybe you had to deny yourself some purchases because you were saving up money. Maybe you had to deny yourself sleep because there was a major project you had to to finish. Maybe you had to deny yourself uh, some free time as you dedicated yourself to some particular goal in life. I think we all know what it means to deny ourselves something. Jesus is saying that if we want to be his follower, there's some things we're going to have to reject. I don't know what you need to reject. Maybe you need to reject a particular sin that you struggle with. Maybe you need to reject a relationship that is negatively impacting you spiritually. Maybe you need to reject your own selfish ambitions or interests. Maybe you need to reject the world and your pursuit of conformity to it. Maybe you need to reject the fears and the worries that are keeping you closeted as a Christian. Maybe you need to reject your very concept of discipleship if it is costless. But at some point in time, 
we're all called to reject the status quo in some fashion. Because following Christ requires you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. So whatever it is that you aim to accomplish in 2023, even if you haven't quite figured it out yet, you're going to have to start by rejecting the status quo. You're going to have to start by saying, hey, the status of my life right now, the situation I am, the comfort zone that I have established is no longer acceptable if I want to be more, if I want to be better, if I want to improve. I have to reject what I am right now so that I can be something more later. And Asa demonstrates that because he rejected the status quo of idolatry that his three generations before him had established. I'm certain that was no easy task. And it doesn't get easier for Asa, to be honest. If we continue looking at the revival that is brought about by Asa, we'll see that he faced a tremendous task as he attempted to initiate religious revival. Because after breaking from the idolatrous status quo established by his ancestors, he faced the task of enforcing monotheism among a people who have been practicing polytheism for the past 60 years. And that presented the next challenge for him. Before he could restore the relationship between the people and God, he first had to eliminate everything that stood in the way of that relationship. Since his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather had allowed idolatry to fester within the nation, he had to remove everything that contributed to the worship of other gods. And that's when the second step comes into play. If you want spiritual revival, if you want to initiate change in your own life, you're going to have to remove all the obstacles. See, Asa's spiritual cleanup project began by removing those remnants of idolatry. Turn over to Second Chronicles, the 14th chapter, and we're going to read three verses there that describe everything Asa had to do to remedy idolatry in the nation. Second Chronicles, chapter 14, beginning in verse 3, we're told that Asa took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out all the cities of Judah, the high places, and the incense altars. In this short description, we learn that Asa was actively taking action. That was not the way that was supposed to be said. Was willing to take action, bold action, to initiate change. He's willing to remove everything that hints idolatry. Everything that has the indication, the reminder of idolatrous worship had to go. And so when you're reading about high places and you're reading about pillars and you're really reading about altars, all of those objects were utilized in the worship of other gods and he's getting rid of them. But he didn't just get rid of the places 
where idolatrous worship occurred or the objects that were used in idolatrous worship. He even went so far as to get rid of people that influenced the nation toward idolatry. In the 15th chapter of 2 Chronicles and the 16th verse, we learn that he even demoted his own mother from a royal position because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asherah was an ancient Middle Eastern goddess associated with fertility. And so Asa's own mother had created an object of worship for a little g-god. And so what did Asa do? He stripped her of her queenship. He stripped her of her royal position because she no longer deserved to be there in a nation that was devoted to Yahweh. Asa was so committed to eliminating idolatry that he did not consider anyone or anything so important that they could not be sacrificed for the Lord. Not literally sacrificed, figuratively. Can you imagine the audacity it takes to tell your mother who is queen, bye-bye? How's that going to go over? But he's willing to do that because she was part of the problem. You see, if we want to make change happen in our lives, particularly if we want to make spiritual change happen in our lives, we have to, like Asa, be willing to take bold measures to move in the direction of righteousness. This may mean that we have to sever certain relationships, that we have to distance ourselves from certain activities, that we may even have to seek professional help to overcome addictions or feelings or personal flaws. I mean, think about the bold step that Jesus once mentioned. If your eye causes you to sin, what? Pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Those are bold measures. And I do believe Jesus was speaking in hyperbole, but their intent of what he's saying is significant, that we should be willing to do anything and everything to protect ourselves spiritually. Ace is doing that in the nation here. He's removing all the obstacles. I think it's worth pointing out something the author of Hebrews challenged us with. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, we're challenged to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely so that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's interesting if you look at this verse in various translations because in addition to sin, some translations use the term encumbrance or the phrase everything that hinders. Or one modern translation says it this way, let's throw off any extra baggage and get rid of the sin that trips us up. The idea here that the author of Hebrews is employing is a running metaphor. He's referring to anything that is burdensome, anything that would slow the runner down, anything that would hinder a runner's ability to complete the race. Last night, I had the opportunity uh, to go for a walk with Micah. She doesn't usually want to go for a walk, but we had about a three and a half mile route we were going to be doing, and for whatever reason, she just wanted to go. But she's been having some knee problems because she, well, she's a little bit clumsy. She fell on the stairs, hurt her knee, yeah. Her knee was bothering her, and we're climbing up a hill in our neighborhood. She was becoming an encumbrance in the sense that 
she didn't want to keep going. So I put her on my back. I said, all right, well, we'll burn some extra calories tonight. Put her on my back on a piggyback and walked up that hill. And man, it got so much harder. You put that extra weight on you, it becomes so much more difficult. Doing a three and a half mile walk is a breeze for me. But doing it with a 60 pound child on my back, actually, I don't even know how much she weighs. I'm just putting a number out there. Made it worse. The author of Hebrews is saying, if you want to complete the race, if you want to succeed, you have to get rid of everything that's excessive weight. Have you done that? That might be part of the reason we don't succeed at resolutions, that we don't meet our goals, that we don't complete our plans. Because we don't get rid of the extra baggage. We don't get rid of the stuff that's going to hold us down and weigh us down. One of the steps you have to do is get rid of that stuff. Not just reject status quo, but get rid of the things that are actively working against you. And maybe that's the step that you need to take as we enter this year. Maybe you need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That's what Asa did when he got rid of all those high places and all those altars and even his own mother. He was getting rid of the baggage that hampered their ability to draw close to the Lord. And one final thought as we look at the life of Asa. Thus far, we've seen that in order to initiate change, we must reject the status quo, as Asa did when he chose to abandon the practice of idolatry. And we've discovered that we must remove the obstacles, as Asa did when he chose to remove those places, objects, and people that promoted idolatry. But in order for change to succeed, we must also rebuild what was broken. This is demonstrated by Asa's efforts to rebuild the Israelite religious system. If you turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 15, I want you to look at verses 8 through 15 with me and see what Asa's doing here. 2 Chronicles chapter 15, we'll start in verse 8. There we're told that Asa repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord, and he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them. In verse 11, we're told they sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought, 700 oxen, 7,000 sheep, and they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul, but that whatever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns, and all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Asa understood that in order to restore Israel's relationship with the Lord, he had to repair some things. He'd been tearing some things down, but now it was time to rebuild some things. The very first thing he rebuilds is the altar, that altar of burnt offering, which we've spent some time talking about in the past several months. That altar of burnt offering was in a state of disrepair, Nobody had taken the initiative to rebuild it since the days of Solomon. Two generations had come and gone. 
and nobody had rebuilt that altar. And that altar, as we have studied in our Rooms to Know series a few months ago, that altar was integral to the faith system of Israel. Because it was on that altar that daily communal sacrifices intended to be a pleasing aroma to God were made. And it was on that altar that individual offerings for the forgiveness of sins were made. And it was on that altar that animals were sacrificed on the Day of Atonement so that the sins of the nation could be removed. This altar was one of, if not the primary means for the Israelites to relate to God for both worship and atonement. And it was unavailable simply because no one took the time to rebuild it. So in order for Asa to succeed in his spiritual revival, he had to rebuild the altar that served as the centerpiece of their religious activity. That's not all he had to rebuild. He also had to rebuild the people's covenant with the Lord. What I mean by that is the nation had long ago stopped obeying Mosaic law. During the days of Solomon, during the days of Rehoboam, during the days of Abijah, they had stopped obeying God's commands. And Asa had to bring them together. Like Ezra and Nehemiah, he had to bring them together and renew the covenant that God had made with them. Not because God had broken it, but because they had. They had to rebuild their commitment to the covenant that God had established with them. He had to lead them to a recommitment to loving God with all their heart and with all their soul, as the text said. You know, when I look at this part of Asa's story, I'm reminded that it's a lot easier to tear down than it is to build up. Destruction is always easier than construction. But spiritual demolition cannot be the final step in our pursuit of change or in our pursuit of revival. You know, Paul called each of us to not only put off our old self, but also to put on our new self in Ephesians chapter 4. In essence, he presented an expectation of spiritual destruction followed by spiritual construction. And we must learn from Asa not to neglect the latter. So in order for your faith to be revived, you may need to rebuild your practice of prayer. Or you may need to rebuild your, your involvement in biblical study. You may need to rebuild your participation in worship. In order for your marriage to be revived, you may need to rebuild your trust with your spouse. Or you may need to rebuild a sense of affection and respect for each other. In order for your character to be revived, you may need to rebuild your reputation among your peers. In order for your finances to be revived, you may need to rebuild your dedication to stewardship or debt-free living or contentment. Regardless of what changes you're trying to make in your own life, the next step is to start rebuilding 
what was previously broken. And I'll be honest with you, rebuilding is not quick and it's not always easy. Rebuilding comes with its fair share of challenges. But it is a necessary step in the process of making change. As we prepare and enter this new year, let's resolve to reject the status quo. Let's remove all sinful obstacles and let's rebuild what is broken. Asa initiated a spiritual revival in Judah because he did not, he did those very things. Rejecting the status quo, removing the obstacles, and rebuilding what was broken. And as we close out this evening, I want you to hear the words a prophet spoke from God to Asa early in his career. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 2 through 7, where the prophet said this, The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the land. So nation was destroyed by nation, and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you, be strong. And do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. There are nuances in that prophecy that don't necessarily apply to our situation. But we need to hear the words that the Lord is with us while we are with Him. We need to hear the instruction to be strong and not let our hands be weak. And we need to hear the promise that our work shall be rewarded. May 2023 be a year of growth for every one of us. May it be a year of blessing. May it be a year where we are more and better and improved when it comes to our walk with the Lord. Tonight might be the night where you start that change. If you need to make a change in your life, if you need to start a relationship with the Lord, if you need to become a child of God tonight, then we invite you to do so while together we stand and sing.